Good morning, again. Good to see half of you that made your way in since we started the service. <laughs> Didn't see some of y'all before. Hey, if you got a Bible, you got an app, you got something that you're going to take with you when you leave here, open it to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. But let me highlight something before we get into the particular message of today. One of the things that we pointed out that when we would study this book of Hebrews is that we we were going to do something that that a number of churches do. We have historically always done it. Uh, Fewer and fewer churches do. And that is to study chapter by chapter, verse by verse through an entire book of the Bible. So typically in a church, you're going to hear something thematic or topical, and it's going to pull some pieces of the Bible into it, and, and that's not wrong by any means. But there's something about studying through the Bible from the beginning of the letter to the end of the letter that's going to let you see some things that you probably would not have seen if you didn't do that. And we, the smart people call that expository study. And it's expository because it's exposing what's in these passages. So part of what we want to do is as we read through these passages and, and preach week to week is, is to learn how to better enjoy our Bibles, learn how to read God's inspired word. And so this, these expository elements are not just uh, tips for preachers. They are helps for you when you read your Bible. All right. So let me read this passage to us and I'll give you a couple expository thoughts before we focus in on one particular aspect. Verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributing, distributed according to his will." Well, a couple of thoughts here, and if you have an outline with you, or you're looking at stuff online, or you guys are watching uh, via live stream and you're looking at our notes, <clears throat> there's some little highlights. I'm not going to take time to go through these, but, but when you come to a Bible passage, these are kind of the, the expected rules of God who chose to speak a certain way. He chose to speak by recording thoughts through people into letters like Hebrews, into the Bible that would be collected. So he chose a certain vehicle through which to speak. We need to obey the rules, if you will, the guidelines of those vehicles. So like when you come to that, there's a couple of little thoughts here. There's an original audience and there's an original context for this. So I might read a Bible passage and be very tempted to make it really, really relevant to something going on in my life right now. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I can make it so relevant to me that I can twist the meaning of that passage into something that there's no way what I just made it mean could have meant that for the original people who heard it. All right, so if you do that, you're misusing the Bible. 
Right? Because there's an original audience. There's a group of people in the first century that are identified as Hebrews. And they had a context and there was stuff going on in their lives. And much that's here needs to make sure it gets along with what the Bible's saying to them, not just what I think it's saying to me. Right? Second, there's language, there's meaning, and there's context into what is written. So we want to make sure we pay attention to that. Particular words are going to be used. Particular ideas are going to get stuffed into some of these passages. And we want to notice those ideas and not just race past them and treat them like that. Well, that didn't really matter. Oh, but does it matter? Did the Holy Spirit inspire this writer to put those words right there along with these other concepts to help us understand something? And he certainly did. And then there's going to be, when you go to study something, talk about it as a group or preach from it, there's going to be truths and principles that are there to inform us. And quite honestly, that's more of what the preaching task is going to go after. So within these passages, there are certain principles and truths and sometimes they get mentioned, but they don't get developed a whole lot in that particular passage. Sometimes they do. Sometimes there's a little bit about that here in this passage, and there's a ton of it elsewhere in the Bible. And the Bible's sort of needing you to pay attention to what you've learned and bring it with you into this passage. That's what we call systematic theology. It's why we promote systematic theology classes because it teaches us to see these principles in this passage everywhere in the Bible. And therefore, we don't interpret this passage incorrectly. We, we help it to line up with the rest of scriptures when we read it. So if you just read that passage there with me, here's some principles that today, right? My, my role is to preach from this passage today to a particular audience. So you're, you're not a seminary class. I'm not writing a commentary today. So all I'm going to do is just uh, interact with the technical language and the setting and what's going on there. And I'm just going to write a commentary on that. And I'm going to pull up all the history, et cetera, et cetera. No, I'm a pastor. And this is a local church pulpit. So we, we want to identify the things that God is saying to this church at this time that this passage helps to clarify. We're not the Hebrews. Right? I mean, you, if you read 1 Corinthians, you're not one of the Corinthians. But you could have some similarities to the Corinthians. There could be some things in your life that are very similar to theirs, and therefore these words line up in your life a certain way. Well, that's true of the Hebrews as well. Right? We're not the Hebrews. But there's got some stuff going on similar to us, right? Big tip, when you read Jeremiah, you're not Jeremiah's audience primarily. You're the secondary audience. And if you don't get that, you'll turn America into Israel. You'll turn what's going on with us into what Jeremiah was talking about. You, you, we might be similar to those settings, but we're not those settings. And you need to be careful how I apply the Bible to my situation. So, so what's here in this passage? Well, I'm going to pick up on this first phrase and I'll explain to you why. We must pay much closer attention. Period. The Bible's going to tell us. Listen up, pay attention. It's going to tell us that, right? We're going to learn about that primarily today. We've heard something in this, a message that must not be neglected by followers of Jesus. That's in this passage. So I, I could preach this morning on that message. That's in this passage. The message came to us by the Lord, by those who were direct witnesses, and by supernatural intervention when God testified by doing stuff around the message that caught your attention. 
So a message has caught man's attention. And God says it's a valid message. And I've done enough to publish it the right way. That's what God says. Right? I could preach from that. This would be an interesting thing to preach from. I'm not going to preach from it, but I want to catch your attention. This is a phrase that I want you to read past too fast, especially in today. There is a mention that this revelation previously from angels, that in it, transgression and, do- and disobedience were met with retribution. What does that mean? That means when human beings transgressed what God said and they disobeyed, disobeyed him, he responded with retribution. The God of the universe dis- responded to human beings with judgment and retribution when they chose to transgress what he revealed and disobey him. Now, why would I even choose to preach from something like that today? Because the justice is an upside down word. It's used, but it's, it's very upside down. We don't know how to feel about people anymore. We've lived in a setting for the last few years where uh, the bad guys are the police who show up in settings to try and enforce the law. The guys who need to be understood are the criminals who are breaking the law. And so it's upside down, right? And that feels normal when you watch it in the news week in, week out, over and over and over again. I mean, you just, I ne- it never stops capturing my attention. There was a person who pursued someone who had just stolen from a supermarket a couple of weeks ago. They're loading the stuff up in their car. The employee goes out there and films them and gets their license plate and got fired. Got fired for it. It's like, I mean, you may not like they took a little bit of a risk there, okay, but you're going to fire him? Right, so now, if you're a, a protester who, who burns down buildings and breaks laws, you, you need to understand that person. Not bring retribution against that person. Our world is upside down. It doesn't know what good is and what evil is. And so it switches things around constantly. And this concept of the idea that there's a God who is love, who also brings judgment, is equally in the Bible. I can't dismiss either one of those. The Bible needs to have its say. And the the writer of Hebrews here just subtly reinforces that, which is all throughout the Bible. We could preach on that this morning. There is a great salvation mentioned here. right? And I'm, I'm tempted to unpack all these. This is why our messages are so long in this church. There's so much good stuff here, isn't there? There's a great salvation in this passage. Salvation. Is that a buzzword for you? Does that word stick out in your life? Is there a moment in which salvation became a living word for you? Or is it just kind of like a vocabulary word amongst every other word? Or does that word define your life perhaps more than anything else about you? Because there's a great salvation in here. That's what this book is about. It's about a great salvation from Genesis to Revelation. And he mentions that in here. And he doesn't un, he's kind of unpacking it in all kinds of ways when he speaks in this category. And then there is a somber warning in this passage. And it's the first of, I believe, five warnings that are in the book of Hebrews. How many of us are comfortable with the Bible warning us? 
mean, a warning. It's, it's sober. It's heavy. It's presenting dire consequences. Right? It doesn't sound like a real positive devotional. And if that's all we're reading, we don't know what to do with that. But the Bible loads this passage up with weight because it's a warning about drifting from God as though that could really happen. All right, so when I approach this passage, I'm, I'm here to pastor a local church using the expository truths from Hebrews. So you can see there's a bunch here that could pull us in a different directions, right? Just from that list. So this, this is just four verses. I just want to invite you into my uh, cumbersome world. This is four verses, but you can see how much is in these four verses. And what am I going to take a limited amount of time to talk to about with you? And we're trying to get through the entire book of Hebrews, Keith. Can we not live in one verse for like weeks at a time? I hear you, (laughs) but I have a hard time just doing one week on these four verses. So I may do two, right? Or I may skip a bunch of really, really good stuff in here. And you just have to give me liberty to do that. So... Let me, let me install this because this is the, the reason why these words are bunched up in these four verses. Here's the reason. And I'm going to give you two things before I jump into the title today. The gravity of this passage is in the warning. We are in danger of drifting. That's why he says what he says. So you can't read back past that too fast. It is the reason the Holy Spirit has inspired this writer to say all the other cool points that are bunched up in these four verses and the stuff around it. Because we are in danger of drifting. Drifting is a massive subject. I probably will deal with it next week. But we need to be sobered by the thought that we're in danger of drifting. And as a pastor, and I think every leader, every small group leader in the church would, would probably agree, even if you've never thought about this before. There's, there's cataclysmic stuff that happens in Christians' lives. Some tragedy happens that disrupts a person's faith. Some uh, temptation to some unique sin happens. And next thing you know, they're off and running. You don't see them again, et cetera, et cetera. But I think you'd agree with me. The number one most destructive thing happening in a Christian's life is drift. Well, it's not real glamorous, is it? It's kind of like I could could get your attention talking about big causes of death. You know, the, uh, the number of people who die in drug overdoses, number of people who die by car accidents or by suicide or, or who drowned during the summer months or get bit by a shark or whatever. There's all kinds of death possibilities. But, but can I just tell you clearly, clearly above all, the number one cause of death? Old age. Sorry, that's the number one cause of death. You just get old, right? You slowly get old. And then your body just kind of runs out of juice. Just kind of, okay. <laughs> Think I'm done. <laughs> right? So drift, if you're just listening for, oh, I would never. You know, that person who, who they got caught in adultery, I would never. And I would never do this and I would never do that. How many of you guys here might drift? Let me just see your hands real quick. The rest of y'all are liars. Or you need this more than I can even imagine you need it. 
Richard Phillips in his commentary on Hebrews says, the author focuses on the danger of drifting away from the message that they have heard. The Greek word here is a nautical term, parareo, describing a ship at sail that has drifted off course or a ship in harbor that has slipped its moorings. In other contexts, it's used to describe something that slips from our minds or even a ring that slips off a finger. One of the key ideas, listen, one of the key ideas here is that this drifting away is something that happens largely unnoticed. While it is happening, the changes are imperceptible. Only later do its consequences become clear. This is a grave danger after which we must respond with careful attention. We do not have to actively betray Jesus or renounce our faith simply by not paying attention, by becoming preoccupied with the sights and sounds of this world. We can be easily drawn out until we are swept away forever. Do you realize that, he says? Do you realize that if you do not pay attention to your spiritual condition, it will deteriorate on its own? Do you realize, given the corrupt nature of this world and of your heart, that you naturally become dull and then deadened spiritually, steadily believing the lies of this evil age? Without giving heed to the spiritual resources God provides, your heart will revert to greed, pride, avarice, sensuality, and malice. All those characteristics that define our natural state in sin and lead to destruction. When you read it like that, it's like drift is a little bit more of a problem, isn't it? It's a massive problem. So what kind of help can we get in the drift category? Well, that's what this passage is offering Titled the message this week, Divine Direction for Days of Drift. And all that's here would cry out, talk about me, talk about me. I'll help you keep you from drift. I'm only going to talk about a couple of them. But especially if you're here today, especially if you're watching live stream with us today, are you drifting? Would you look at your own heart, your affections, your pursuits, your interests, your goals, your passions, would you say, yeah, I think I kind of am. I think I'm kind of drifting. Because remember this, the audience, the original audience were drifting. And they were drifting for reasons in all humility, all of us would, would grant them some grace in. They were suffering. Their life was difficult and discouraging. They wanted to give up and quit. This is too hard. That's the original audience. Some of us are in that category, perhaps. But this is the advice for those who are in danger of drift. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And I want to really squeeze this down very small to the fact that in this moment of the danger of drift, there is something for you and me to do. We must, that's how the Holy Spirit inspired this writer. We must do something. 
And you're going to find throughout Hebrews, there's, there's revelation followed by the phrase, let us. You'll find it all over Hebrews. Let us, let us this, let us that. We started the study of Hebrews. Let us run with endurance, the race that's set before it. There's something for us to do all throughout Hebrews. And I feel like I need to make a case for that in today's audience. Right? But notice something theological that happens here. Notice the flow of Hebrews. Right? We're, we just started chapter 2. What if you started back in chapter 1 and say, hey, what was chapter 1 like? Well, we've kind of done that already. Chapter 1 has first uh, 14 verses in it. And they're all about what God has done and who God is. There's nothing in the first chapter that asks you to do anything. It's all about him. John Piper says in chapter 1 of Hebrews, there are no commands for the church. We're not told to do anything. The whole chapter is a declaration and celebration of God's final word to the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In summary, chapter 1 says that the Son of God is the heir of all things. It says he made the world. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Now remember, I'm not going to unpack each one of these, but each one of these phrases is intended to say something to my soul. Consider Jesus. Well, what about him? J-E-S-U-S, is that what you're asking me to consider? Some, some guy who dressed like a hippie and walked around with sandals in the, in the dirt in the Middle East? Is that what you're asking me to consider? No! Consider these things. Consider when you start feeling like my life is out of control, there are situations and people that are derailed right now and only bad can come of that. All right, put that right next to this phrase. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So that means all things means all things. What about this thing going off the rails in my life right now? He, he upholds all things by the word of his power. This thing is not escaping him. Oh, it feels like it is because it's taking a bad turn and I can't fix it. And it's, he is still upholding all things according to the word of his power. I need to hear that. And that's all about him. I do need to hear it though. And then this verse in chapter two is going to say, well, you don't just need to hear it, Keith. You need to pay much closer attention to it. Right? That's the construct here. Piper goes on and says, there are no commands for us here. Only declaration and celebration of the greatness of Jesus, the final word of God. So a whole chapter is only going to sound like this. This is who he is. This is what he's done. Isn't it amazing? Can you believe it? Wow, wow, wow. Why, why that? Well, it is critical that I'm wowed by Jesus. It is critical that I know the things that make my soul go, wow. There's nobody like him. Did you see that? Did you know he did that? Did you know who he is? He is that? I mean, I, my, I've got to find something to celebrate in him or I'm not following him. John Piper says the Christian life is first and foremost a life of contemplation, right? Learning and seeing and knowing something, listening to Jesus, considering Jesus, fixing the eyes of the heart on Jesus. Everything else in the Christian life grows out of this. 
Without this, the Christian life is simply unlivable. That's Hebrews chapter 1. That's its strategy. That's why it's there. And then with no apology or brace yourselves or put on your seatbelt or prepare yourself, the Bible's next thing to say, we therefore must pay much more careful attention to what we have heard. There's an impact from it. There's a weightiness to it. There's an informing about it that we would do well to pay careful attention to. Piper says, but in chapter two, the first thing is a command or a duty, something we must do. You just read a whole chapter about stuff that he does and he has done. And the angels are worshiping him. And I mean, it just sounds like it's all about stuff that's done. And yes, it is. And then the Bible turns around and says, now you must do. And this is, this is not unique. This is not like, whoa, this writer of Hebrews, has got, he's got that one weird angle nobody else has. This is the way the Bible sounds everywhere. Right? Everybody in the church should have this passage memorized. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Right, so we, we get a foundation for understanding this grace of God. It is, it is from him. It is by him. It is not from you. It is not by you. It is a gift from God. You are not able to boast. You can't take ownership in it. You can't take blame for its deficiency. It is about him. And then without even shifting gears... Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Wait, wait, can you, can you say works that close to grace in the Bible and not get a ticket? Cause you could pollute grace by introducing works. You want to flag Paul for that? You want to tell the Holy Spirit you should not inspire those two words so close to each other. Apparently, those two words don't hate each other in the Bible. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should. We should be walking in the good works God has prepared beforehand. I should be walking. You should be walking. You should be doing something. Do you like the way that feels? You should be doing something as a Christian. How's that feel? Legalistic? Right? I mean, I think we do need to sort through a little bit of what else is speaking into our souls when we come to this kind of stuff in the Bible. Can, can we let Hebrews be Hebrews or are we going to twist it and ignore parts of it because we don't like the way that makes us feel? Right? So I think I put a question here online. What makes us go to war with doing? What is it about that makes us go to war. I'll give you two reasons. I don't know if I put them in your outlines. First, having something to do can put us in touch with our failure to do and even our unwillingness to take action, thus resulting in some experiencing of guilt. How many of us love guilt? Is there anybody in the room who loves guilt? I just want to meet one person on the planet who'd say, dude, I love guilt. Isn't it awesome? Nobody likes feeling guilty. 
we failed. We fell short. We didn't measure up. And if the Bible uses words like should, we must, it gives us something to do that we don't always do, right? Are you with me? I don't always do what the Bible says. I don't always have the right heart in what I'm doing. I fall short a lot. And I can focus on that. And I can feel bad about that. I can't rewrite the Bible, though. And the Bible's not looking for me to land here wrong. So I'm going to need to get some understanding, right? Here's a second reason I would say that we go to war with doing. Perhaps we have been living amidst a theological emphasis that has lacked featuring grace and God-centeredness. That, I think I would say, was a good description of the body of Christ in the mid-1900s. The more mainline denominational things became, the more traditional things became, the more the teaching that came in pulpits sounded a lot more like moral behaviorism, adjusting what you do, explaining what holiness looks like. And next thing you know, your church is all about how long is a skirt supposed to be? What kind of hairstyle is appropriate? And should women wear makeup? And, and all of a sudden, there's all kinds of ideas that are about human behavior and human behavior and human behavior and more human behavior. And then calling into question people's human behavior. And, and you shouldn't be doing that, shunning people. It, just, it created a community within the people of God. And then something happened in the 1970s and into the 1980s. Parts of the body of Christ begin to, quote, discover grace and, and it would get featured. You would, you would hear it on a church, you know, they'd put it on their board outside of their church building or in their bulletin. You know, we are a, a church about, that features the grace of God. I mean, it's like you had to bring it out and, and it's kind of like that should have shocked everybody to say, Hey, how could you not have been that up to this point? How could you not have read this and not seen that all over this book is the grace of God. How, how did that become de-emphasized? But it did. And so then the pendulum swung into the world of correcting that and, and held it there and grace-oriented and grace-filled and all these phrases highlighted grace and then that eventually morphed into gospel-centered. Again, gospel-centered sounds like something that's about the justifying work of Christ. And it is. And that's in the Bible. And so that, next thing you know, everything sounds like Hebrews chapter 1. And you get to Hebrews chapter 2 and you kind of go, oh, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. This is telling me to do something. I'm not used to being told to do something. Can I, can I tell you, if you're 45 years and younger, you were not raised in the first thing I just described. If you're 45 years and younger, you're wrestling with something totally different. Anytime you're told to do something and it puts you in touch with failing, you're responding to something that you don't like the way that feels. So there must be something wrong with what I'm hearing. Or... You have lived in a church world that has so de-emphasized any form of doing that you've been raised in a generation that doesn't really care about doing. Do whatever. You do you. I'll do me. And all of a sudden, there is just a weird variety in the kingdom of God of things being done by people because there's no, there's no specificity about that because... 
the previous generation had problems in that category and it got corrected by doctrines of grace and et cetera, et cetera. So you, you could be allergic to these topics for reasons that might be worth exploring. But Hebrews is going to try and say something to a struggling audience and it doesn't apologize for saying you must pay much more careful attention to what you've heard. And this is going to turn around in Ephesians, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and say stuff like this, verse 11. Let us, let us what? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Here is God making available this thing called rest we're going to learn about, this promised land venture into the promises of God that's put under this banner of rest. But then there's this disconnect. There's these people in this book this original audience that's not experiencing the good of that. And the writer's going to turn around and say, let us strive to experience the good of that. Do something to experience this. But striving can feel like a curse word, can't it? Striving, oh, that, that sounds like works. Well, yeah, yeah, it does. And if you keep works in the right category... It's not a problem. And the Bible does. And how about this education on works? James chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, can that say faith, faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for their body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There's a lot of ways to believe stuff, right? There's a lot of ways to, quote, have faith. That isn't exactly what the Bible was looking for. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. That's an interesting thought here, right? Expositorily, if I pick up James, what is James doing right here? Did the verses right before this say, can I just, can I just fix a mess that the apostle Paul made in several other books? His description of being saved by grace alone, by a faith that was a gift apart from any works. Yeah, that whole thing, I need to fix that. The Romans book presents justification by grace alone. Listen, you need to work a little bit to contribute. Does anybody think that's what James is doing right here? He's not doing that. But he is calling into question the idea that grace would come to us from God and would not be experienced in real ways, transformative ways, 
It, it's almost as though what James does is he, he takes a little life sample of faith and he puts it under a microscope, dials down on it, he looks at this thing, and when he sees it, it's like he sees a, a red strand and a blue strand of wire, that string that's just into a ball. And, and the red strand is faith and the blue strand is works. And they're all just wound together into this ball. He doesn't just see one of them. He sees them wound together because he recognizes the reality that if God shows up in your life by faith, that was a gift from him. And he's really there and his grace is active in our lives. It's doing stuff, all kinds of stuff. But remember, this is where our systematic theology comes in, right? This is why we don't go to Hebrews 2 or James chapter 2 and bring the doctrine of justification with us. So, Keith, what you're saying is, I have to work in order to be saved. Is that what you're saying? You may now leave. Whoever's here saying that. (laughs) That's not what James is talking about. And Hebrews chapter 2 does not turn around and say, hey, if you want to be accepted by God, you're going to need to pay much better attention. This is not a justification verse. This is not trying to get us to do enough to be okay with God. That's been settled and solved elsewhere. So can we talk about doing for other reasons? How about your own sense of growth? Your own sense of health? And I love what's said here. This is, a, this is an, an intriguing little statement about Abraham. You see, verse 22, you see, faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. It's the Greek word teleo. And that Greek word's used all over the place. If you're speaking Greek, it's all over the place. It's not just a Bible word, but it's a word that means to mature, to complete something, to reach its goal, to perfect. So faith is in our lives. And then there's works, there's activities, there's things that we're doing that bring it to another place and bring it to another place and bring it to another place. It changes the environment. It enlarges the space. It's like here, you had this little incubator, faith sitting in this little incubator, but, but now faith has grown a little bit. It needs a bigger space. Well, how did that space get? Well, works created that space. And then it needs another one. And then works created that space. I did stuff in agreement with God. I began to walk in, in certain ways, begin to trust God in certain ways, in large spaces of my life. Could just be Bible reading. By faith, I'm reading my Bible for its benefit in my life and it creates a larger space and faith goes to another level. This keeps me from drifting. This is not a small thing. My life is prone to drifting. I need this to guard me but I don't need this to save me. I'm not justified by these things. Richard Phillip goes on and says, when it comes to the past tense of our salvation, to what is already finished and secure, namely our justification through faith in Christ, there is no place for our works. We receive forgiveness of our sins, not by our work, but by Christ's work. 
Faith is first essentially passive. We do not act but receive, resting upon Christ's saving action on our behalf. But when it comes to the present tense of our salvation, that which is working out progressively, namely our sanctification, this is extremely active. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains it well. In the matter of our righteousness and our justification, we can never say too often that we do nothing. We can do nothing. It is entirely the work of Christ. But once we are saved and given the new life, then the progressive work of sanctification does not call for passivity. And we are exhorted to activity. Therefore, we must pay much more careful attention to what we have heard. My favorite pastors in the 1800s of a man named J.C. Ryle in the church in England. He says, I will never shrink from declaring my belief that there are no spiritual gains without pains. I would as soon expect a farmer to prosper in business who contented himself with sowing his fields and never looking after them till harvest. As expect a believer to attain much holiness who has not diligent about his Bible reading, his prayers, and the use of his Sundays. See, the absence of those things almost assure a life of drift. There is something for us to do. Right? One more thought from Mr. Phillips. He says, drifting away happens on its own without much effort on our part, but staying on course is quite the opposite. It requires constant diligence. In the matter of our belief, as in all other matters, Christianity requires hard work. The New Testament describes a life of faith as a fight, a race, and a field in which a farmer labors. Paul says in various places, I press on, I follow after, I strive, I fight. Listen, I totally get, and we're a community of people who are in a variety of places. We come from different backgrounds. We're, we've, we've read certain portions of the scripture. We've studied some things at a greater level than others. So I totally get that we don't all get this at the same level. I have not always got this at the same level. I, I can certainly think of times in my life where uh, I, I did not like these words. Strive and fight and press on. I, I did not like these words. I did not like these words because part of me comes from a background. I grew up Catholic. And, and in my community, it, all the emphasis was on human goodness, on, on what you did, on your goodness. And you started to, to relate the idea that God related to you on the basis of what you did, on how good you were, or on whether or not you had you know, done some penance and cleaned up the mess you made, and therefore God now would relate to you differently. It's like you had a lot of control over whatever God was going to be to you in your life. That, I mean, so I come from that background. That's what shaped my ideas about good and bad and relating to God. And then I, I read things in Hebrews, like Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to get to this verse 14. The 
Hebrews 9 and 10, again, just tell you, if you're a Catholic who's never studied what you believe, Hebrews 9 and 10 is going to give you whiplash. I'm not trying to say that to be ugly. I mean, I'm a teenager reading Hebrews 9 and 10 and, and, and asking the question, why did I believe what I believed all these years? Because you're going to hear stuff like this when you get to Hebrews chapter 10. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, he has perfected for all time. Wait, for the next five minutes? No. For all time, those who are being sanctified. Right, so there's an aspect I understand myself to have been perfected. I'm, I'm as right as I'm ever going to be with God, but I'm still changing. Well, how can that be? Because my being right with God is not related to what I have done, but what he has done. And Hebrews 9 and 10 is going to clarify that for us. Consider Jesus when you run this race, right? He has done something that has finished God looking for something to be done for him to be okay with me. Jesus finished that. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. No more remembered. Yeah, that's a, that's a weighty little phrase right there. Because it, it's a phrase that, that means recalling them for payment. God says, I'm never going to do that. Why? Because I've been really, really good ever since I became a Christian. No. Because how could he make me pay for something that his son fully paid for? You realize the insult it would be to the work of Jesus Christ for God through purgatory or anything else in your life to, to require you to pay for what Jesus claims to have fully paid for. It is an insult to the son of God. He fully paid for those sins. When God relates to me, those sins will not come up ever. But that doesn't release me from that sanctification word, does it? I still have stuff to do. I'm still going to do something tomorrow. And I'm even being warned about in this book. If you don't do this, you're going to be vulnerable to drift just like anybody else, man. That doesn't change what Jesus did for me. The finished work of what he did for me. But it still is in my life, right? Maybe some of us kind of don't like some of these words because they, they can feel a little exhausting, can't they? I mean, you come to Jesus, your life gets busy, you've got a lot going on, you feel like you're screwing up all over the place. Great. There's more to do. And if, and if I don't do it, I'm going to drift. Oh, this is, this is a blast. <laughs> these guys, this, there's an original audience here. They had some of that in them. This was going on for them. They were discouraged. It didn't restrain this advice, which makes me think there's more life in this advice than my foolish heart allows there to be. This is a good thing for my soul to hear. But, but there is something that I'm required to learn from other places in the Bible when I come to this verse. 
I need to learn something about grace. Can I just tease you a little bit with this and, and ask you to meditate on it? Maybe attend a systematic theology class, do something that helps you learn about grace. Listen to verses like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, Christian, so that having all sufficiency in all things or all times and all times, you may abound in every good work. But I feel exhausted, man. I don't, I don't have time. I'm, where am I putting this Bible reading thing you're talking about? Come on. I fall into the bed exhausted at night. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, including paying much more careful attention to what you have heard. So part of me is guilt-free in saying, I got one more thing for you guys to do this week. Pay more careful attention. Oh, and by the way, could you let the grace of God be sufficient to cause that to happen in you? That's where our energy comes from. Grace that God gives to us. Paul goes on and says, 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, Listen, dude, I worked, the listen, dude is Keith's translation. I worked harder than any of them. No, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul saw there was a grace from God that functioned in his doing. Do you think that means he never collapsed into bed at night? Do you think Jesus asleep in the back of that boat was faking it? He's in the back of the boat. Storm is going on, right? He's kind of got one eye open. Because he's not really tired. He's faking that. The dude ministered in the power of the Spirit. He was tired. But there was grace for everything he did. And Paul too. So you and I could be, we could be bumping into things that, man, I feel tired, I feel exhausted. And I get to chapter 2, verse 1, and it calls me to do something to protect my life from drift. There is a grace available for me for that to take place. And then there's one more thing. There's something called the mercy of God. It's kind of like the grace of God's twin. But it's, it's a little bit more complicated. Because grace is certainly this thing in God that that because of him and in him, something gets pushed toward us, not based on us at all. It's just based on his desire to push this toward us. That's what grace is, feels like. Mercy, mercy is more like a response to something that's repulsive and doing something for it in spite of its lack of deserving. They're kind of related, but they're a little subtly different. So this is a message where the Bible, I'm trying to emphasize for us, the Bible calls us to take action, to do certain things. We sang this song this morning, He Will Hold Me Fast. Who's doing the doing in that song? He is, right? 
Would you rather a message that sounded like that? He will, he will, he will. Well, that was Hebrews chapter one. And then the Bible doesn't blink when it gets to Hebrews chapter two and says, okay, now you do. So you and I cannot divorce these things, but you are going to, and we know this, fail in your doing. That doesn't release us from doing, but it does kick in the mercy of God. Psalm 23, probably the most famous Psalm, has a great phrase in it. Surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. And I, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a, that's a mercy statement. Do you know who writes that? A murderer and an adulterer who defamed the name of God like almost nobody else did before the foreign enemies of God. A man named David wrote those words. God, your loving kindness is going to follow me even after that. I said all the days of your life, David. Because that's how grace sits in me. I'm going to be this to you. And I know you're not going to stay on course. But I'm going to still be this to you. All right. So if all this stuff is true. And the Bible then turns around and says, hey, do something. Live a certain way. Can, can we not kick that stuff out of our life and act like, oh, I feel guilty. And oh, I feel condemned. Hey, the Bible's covered this all over the place. It doesn't. Anywhere, say, okay, Christians, brace yourself. I'm going to talk about you doing something now. Now, don't throw the legalism word at me now. Let me explain to you justification. The Bible doesn't do that. We have had to do that for other reasons outside of the Bible. So I want to pray for us this morning. Where's Seth? There is a danger in your life in my life of drifting. There is a danger of drifting. It's a real danger. Hebrews chapter two is not faking a warning here. It is warning us. There is a real danger. If you talk to anybody who's been a Christian for a little while, who knows some people who followed Jesus, they would begin to be able to tell you stories about people whose lives ended in bad places, who have corrupted stories to tell, who have wayward stories to tell, who once were in one place, now they're in a bad place. And when you begin to trace the steps, it doesn't start with some profound moment of rejecting everything they've ever believed. It begins with drifting. And then the inspired writer of Hebrews says, therefore, we must pay much more careful attention to what we have heard. There is something for us to do as believers. And maybe we have been at war or neglectful. And there's a warning in this passage about neglecting such a great salvation. We're called to do something with what we heard in chapter one. Right? So, I want to summon us to do something today. I'm going to, 
I'm going to give you something to do, or I'm trusting the Holy Spirit actually is going to give you something to do. So let's, let's stand up together and ask the Lord for some help. Lord, we are so grateful to be here this morning for those who are watching online couldn't be here with us but they have pulled up a chair to sit at the feet of Hebrews chapter 2 to listen for words inspired by your Holy Spirit born witness throughout scripture said many times many places in many ways Lord, in this passage, you are concerned for these people. You are concerned for us. You are concerned about whether any one of us is drifting. So Holy Spirit, I just want you to search the room. I want you to be among us. I want you to be in my own heart. I want you to be in the person in the back row and the person all the way in the front row, the youngest person in the room and the person who's known you the longest here. And I want you to say something to them about whether they are drifting. There is only one type of drifting. Dangerous drifting. There is no safe drifting, comfortable drifting. Lord, we are not sympathetic to one another here. Lord, I know so many of these lives and stories in the room. Lord, there are some who are drifting because. They lost hope at some point recently. Or some event happened or some season took place. Things didn't go the way they thought. Life hasn't turned out the way they had hoped. People haven't been who they thought they would be. They're not sure, Lord, about who you really are toward them. Lord, I wish I could say, I don't know anything about those experiences. Lord, I wish in those seasons where I have lived every moment, I have paid careful attention rather than feeling discouraged, having self-pity, Wondering why, questioning you, stepping back, trying to protect my own sense of hope by not putting it in you again. Lord, that's the folks here in Hebrews. That was many of their lives were in that place. And you did not hesitate to tell them that there is a God who can be known. He is incredible. He's in chapter one. And you have spoken and revealed yourself long ago and in many ways. 
And you have most vividly put yourself on display in your son, in Jesus Christ. And you say one thing after another, after another, after another. To the discouraged soul, to the wanderer, to the drifter, you say, you must pay much more careful attention to him. You can't afford to keep your eyes diverted from him. You must consider Jesus or you will drift into the worst place. So Father, we pray this morning for every person here who feels like I'm drifting. Lord, we know about your grace that comes to us and it gives us motivation to do things that we perhaps don't feel like doing or don't want to do. But Lord, you are at work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. That's grace on our behalf at work in us. Father, I pray for every person who feels drifting, Lord, that they would receive an awakening of your grace, an impulse of your grace, a nearness of your grace to suddenly cause them to obey this passage. You must pay much more careful attention. Let that begin from this moment forward. Lord, let there be contemplation and consideration of who you are. Let there be absorption into our bloodstream of the greatness and the trustworthiness the effective work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to reconcile us to a purpose and a plan that God has for each one of us to bring glory to his name, to travel through things that may involve suffering and setbacks and loss, but yet still to be a life full of purpose, full of reasons, worth living, valuable, glorious, because we belong to you. We are yours. We are declaring your goodness and your grace through our lives. So, Father, would you help us, Lord, to be a people who are doing what you've called us to do? Pay much more careful attention to what you have revealed to us. Just pray for one more group here. This passage speaks about not neglecting a great salvation a great salvation, a moment when peril and danger and an unresolved condition gets saved, a great salvation. It happens in a moment. And if you're here this morning or you're watching by live stream, You cannot neglect this great salvation by turning to Christ and saying yes to him this morning. You can put your faith in him. You can do what this whole book is about. Follow Jesus by putting your faith in him. What he did, not what you're going to do, not how you're going to fix your life or make yourself right with God, but just completely accepting Jesus Christ did that for you. It's a great salvation. And if you will receive it by faith, his life will come into your life and the rest of your life. You'll be following him by the grace that operates in you. His power, his life given to you. So if you want to do that, tell the Lord right now, that makes sense to you. Tell him, hey, I want what he just said. I want that great salvation. 
I'm turning to you this morning, July 23rd. And I'm putting my faith, my trust, and my hope in Jesus Christ. And I'm receiving the life that you've given me. I'm not doing this my way, with my strength, and my plan any longer. God, my life is yours. I want that great salvation. Lord, give it to me. In Jesus' name. Listen, if you meant that, I hope you'll just take a minute. Maybe come find me. Maybe meet me in the great guest reception in just a moment. Just tell me, hey... Today was the day of my great salvation. It starts a great journey with him. And that's what Hebrews is all about, trying to get us some help to walk this great journey for the glory of God. All right, love you guys. Thanks so much. Great to see you guys live stream. Hey, guests, if you could take a minute, join us. We'd love to say hello to you in the bookstore. Anybody here needs prayer, please find your way forward and the prayer team will come find you and spend a few moments with you, praying with you. We'll see you next week.